In other words, not, you know, becoming like the exorcist girl and your head spinning around. No one got hurt. <laughs> we, uh, you know, we, we avoided the, the sights that were on the cliff face. Uh, and I first learned about the, the peas and you can call it pea power, whatever you'd like. Uh, maybe you're recognizing that the benefit of change may actually outweigh the risk of staying the same. Beat the stress, fool. Do you know how many times I've been asked to say that? Well, you know, suppose I'm just, you know, traipsing upon you guys. I would not try to become a professional athlete while you were pregnant, however. That equates to one bouillon crushed, a cube crushed into half a cup of water or a ramen packet in the same amount. Shake my hand. You will sell me this car. Shake my hand. Welcome to the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. In this March-April issue of 2021, we're going to discuss some very interesting things. But be warned, this podcast is epic. It's going to be a little longer than usual. Well, why? Well, first of all, we're going to talk about our Journal Club article on drones. Then we're going to go into a very interesting topic about working under stress, how to mitigate stress, and why this is important for us in wilderness medicine. And I believe that this material is going to help you, the listener, significantly in your clinical practice and even in your personal life. Lastly, we're going to highlight some great talks that were given at the 2021 Winter Wilderness Medical Society Conference, which I admit was very fun to participate in. Drones, you like them or you leave them, but they're here to stay. Technically, they're called UAVs or unmanned aerial vehicles, and they serve a variety of applications. With me to discuss the journal article, Utilizing Drones to Restore and Maintain Radio Communication During Search and Rescue Operations is the lead author, Jake McRae. Jake, tell us a little bit more about yourself and what's been going on, what are your experiences professionally, and Let's talk about what sparked your interest in drones and search and rescue. Well, Daryl, thanks for having me back. About me, so I'm a fourth year medical student over at Rocky Vista University in uh, Utah. Um, and I'm a recent fellow in the Academy of Wilderness Medicine, the FOM. I finished that last July. And I'm emergency medicine bound. I just finished up all of my interviews. Um, so the Zoom has given me a little bit of PTSD since all of our interviews are over Zoom. Uh, but now just waiting on that. Uh, the, what they call the match. But before medical school, I was a registered nurse, which allowed me to serve as a medical lead on two search and rescue teams. One team was at, outside of Yellowstone National Park up in Island, uh, Idaho, Island Park, where we did about 50 rescues a year. And then the now I'm currently down in Southern Utah on a team just outside of Zion's National Park, where we do about 150 rescues a year. We're pretty busy. And I never had a particular interest in drones until, you know, recently when I could just envision and, and see these drones making our job so much easier as a search and rescue uh, enthusiast, where a drone could, you know, do what we do in 20 hour man hours, they can do in a half hour sometimes. So it kind of caught my interest and, you know, wanted to explore the research side of it and see if I could introduce these ideas to other units. It's amazing. You know, my drone story was a couple of years ago, I was up in uh the Everest region, teaching Sherpas, medical rescue and whatnot. And I said, you know, I'd like to get a drone for that area. It's just amazing, the pictures and the movies that I got from the drones. But, you know, for our listeners, because not everybody's going to understand 
how drones work. Could you briefly discuss how these drones work? Absolutely. There are several types, uh, but the ones used most commonly in search and rescue are what's called quadcopters, so four propellers. And they're kind of like mini remote controlled helicopters. Um, most are about the size of a laptop. And back five years ago, or even a little bit further, you know, they could go up a couple hundred feet, do a backflip, and then crash in front of you because they ran out of battery. Now with the technology, you can put on goggles that make it look like you're sitting in a dark IMAX movie theater, seeing what the camera sees, fly five miles away, thousands of feet up. And the best part is if you, if you lose signal or, or if you just push a button, the drone will fly itself back to you and land right in front of you without you pushing anything on your controller. Yeah, speaking of, you know, being out in the remote areas, uh, obviously you need some sort of a Bluetooth capability, but it doesn't sound like you need Wi-Fi directly, is that right? No, that's correct. It's all internal based between the drone and the actual controller uh, that you're using to fly it. No Wi-Fi needed. Yeah, and the hand devices, you can actually do away with that in some instances and use your phone, a uh, smartphone, I guess, too, because they have apps that will allow you to fly a given drone like a Mavic. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. The signal is quite a bit worse. We explored that a little bit uh, just because the antennas on the remote are you know, significantly better at getting them when you're miles out. But in terms of, you know, you can use the phone and the apps to fly them really close to you. Yeah. Do you have one of those uh, fancy helmets then? Those, uh, I do. <laughs> you do? Okay. Yeah. It looks like I'm in the Space Force or something. You put it on and the goggles, they stick out three, four inches from your face. And yeah, you can see exactly what the camera sees. And it, yeah, it's spectacular. Uh, that's great. Well, in search and rescue, give us a little uh, synopsis on what kind of radios are used and why do they use those radios? And what do search and rescue teams use if you lose communication during a search and rescue event. Yeah, so our team uses uh, dual band radios and that's pretty common at least here in Utah or the West Coast. Dual band because they work on the very high frequencies and then the ultra high frequencies. And then these frequencies are designated by the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission for public safety. So like EMS, fire, police, search and rescue, we all have our allotted radio frequencies that are, are, we program our radios to. And then they also have watts, and that's kind of the power or the output strength. And so if you think about it, one watt equals about a mile, and it just goes up from there. So we use about three to eight watt radios so we can shoot it out pretty quick. And to answer your second question, uh, currently, if you lose signals, most of the time, um, you know, we just try to get on without it. But if there is a, you know, a need uh, where we need to call in additional equipment, different skill set, if we need a certain medication, or more importantly, if it's a you know, manpower evac, or if we need to call in a helicopter, uh, we typically have to send a, one of our search and rescue team members back and until they can you know, pick up communication again, which often delays the rescue or, or what needs to happen. So these radios sound like they're similar to what we would call a ham radio, isn't that right? Yeah, exactly. So then would you say that you would actually need some sort of a line of sight for these radios to work optimally between, let's say, the starting point where an incident commander would be and the rescuers, the hasty team, the strike team, whatever? Optimally, yes. There can be a little leeway. Signals bounce a little bit. 
uh, just depending on the terrain. If, you know, it's a lot of hard rock, it bounces the radio signal a little bit better, but once, you know, you put that signal in a, in a maze, it, it crashes pretty quick when terrain gets complicated. Well, here in the Sandia Mountains, we're fortunate because it's a pretty rugged area, but we're near a metropolitan area as well. But on the top of this peak, uh, 10,600 feet in elevation, we have these things called a repeater. And I was wondering if you could discuss what a repeater is and how that works. And are they all around or are they rare? How do you find out if you have a repeater so that you could prolong the distance that you could communicate with an individual? Most counties have repeaters, um, typically set up at least by the, uh, the sheriff's department as part of the FCC. And so, for example, our county has five repeaters from Zion National Park to the other side of the county, but you know, they only go so far and a lot of times you kind of get outside of them. But what a repeater is, is it records what's being said on a radio and then it retransmits it. A simplex repeater records what's being said and then after retransmit it, so kind of an echo, and then a duplex repeater records and transmits on a different frequency so they can be recording and transmitting at the exact same time. It's the ideal setup that a duplex is, but it's a little more complicated to get airborne. It's like you said, the repeater that's on your hill, you know, it's a 50 foot tower, <laughs> right? a little, little harder to fly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. What type of repeater system are you showing in figure two? And, you know, for the audience, that means uh, you better read the article. And if Jake and Alicia permit, we'll actually put that picture up. But what, is that a control repeater system that you show in that picture? Yeah, so that's that's the figure of what the, the repeater system that we built. And it's pretty much just a repeater controller, uh, a simplex. So it records what's being said. And then the other aspect you see there is just a standard search and rescue radio. Oops, you might be driving. Figure two shows a really nice four propeller drone hovering in an azure blue sky over some nice sandstone, red, rust-colored, stratified sandstone outcroppings among our white, heavenly, billowy clouds. Connected to the drone is a one-foot cord hauling an apparatus resembling an official-looking walkie-talkie. The search and rescue radio with a whitish, electronic-looking rectangular thin box of approximately the same size, the device we are talking about. So the radio will hear what's being said, put it into this little box, and then the box records it and then spits it out after what's being said is done. Well, for the drone then, how heavy was that payload and how heavy can that, how, what are the weights that that drone could carry? Was it a pretty heavy payload that had to be carried this whole system? Uh, the, the repeater itself was about three ounces and the radio itself was about eight ounces. So you're, you're talking about 11 ounces altogether. So, you know, the Mavic 2's payload, at least the drone that we used was about 16 ounces without, so pound without any adverse outcomes, but there are drones like the M200, the M600 that can carry five to 10 pounds. So the, the, the system that we made was pretty light, although you could go quite a bit heavier if you have a more advanced drone. In the paper, in the methods, your group identifies some crazy, rocky, craggy slot canyons, cliffs, mountains, wide deserts, dunes and wide deserts, 10 sites in uh, southeast Utah to determine whether or not the drones that would carry the simplex repeater system could restore lost communication in these challenging areas where the search and rescue operations would and probably do potentially occur with the proper permissions and 
how did you carry out the study? What were your specific aims and how did you get these permissions? Because sometimes that's difficult to do with the government. Yeah, definitely. We met with the search and rescue leadership and they helped us identify 10 areas or 10 specific rescues that took place in the last three years where radio communication was lost during a live rescue. And so we recorded those GPS units and then we set up 10 mock scenarios where we'd have someone staged at IC where we originally set up our incident command where, you know, the ambulance, all our gear is, and then a rescue unit that would go into wherever the GPS coordinates were. And our two aims of this study were primarily if we could get communication back, if we could reestablish that clear line uh, to communicate what we need. And then second is how fast it took us to get the system up and running in the air and to uh, restore comms. So you kind of had a predetermined idea initially based on previous experience that certain terrains, certain distances, whatever the environmental factors were, would be associated with a loss of communication. And then it sounds like you simply reproduced those conditions in these given geographical areas. That's correct. You had these 10 scenarios and you could say why you chose 10 instead of five, instead of 20 or whatever. These were based on locations where you had first deployed the search and rescue test subjects. They would go away from the start site where an incident commander would be. And these so-called rescuers were equipped with a Baofeng five watt two-way radio, which is commonly used by a lot of us at SAR in the region of that country. How far could the so-called rescuer go initially from that start point to where they would lose communication? This is probably difficult to answer because it depends on the terrain, yeah? Yeah, definitely. The, the 10 scenarios that we chose ranged between one and nine kilometers. So 5.5 miles was the furthest we went. And so, like you said, the rescuer went to these GPS coordinates and we'd start out, you know, checking as they, as they hiked in and the signal would be great. And then once we lost them, we would allow time for them to make their way into the GPS coordinates. So say it was a mile rescue and we lost them at half a mile, we'd allow time for them to get all the way fully back to where those GPS coordinates were, where the live rescue was. And then we would shoot up the drone and the repeater and try to restore communications from there. Okay. Yeah, speaking of GPS, and I just thought of this, um, with regard to that, did you actually track people using uh, GPS? Did you actually trace people on a map, a computerized map or anything, or not so much? In terms of the rescuer group yeah. or the, yeah. yeah. See where they ended up. Mm -hmm. Their goal was to get to the GPS coordinates where the live patient was oh. in our, in our mock scenarios. And then we tracked them with the GPS um, kind of after the facts. Once they came back, we uploaded the, their GPS onto the computer and see kind of where they went. Okay, and so that added a little more, I guess, precision to the study to say, you know, we could go this far, we could go this far with the drone at the, based on this GPS coordinate, which is something we'll get into. Yeah, that, that's correct. Yep. So, and this is going to be for people who may not understand much about drones or drone laws, but the drone was sent out and this drone operator, the incident commander, he was somebody who was we call a part 107 drone pilot. What, what, what is a part 107 pilot? What, and why didn't they choose part 100? I, you know, that's so confusing. What is a part 107 pilot? 
Yeah, Part 107 pilot is a pilot's license from the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, for drone use or for unmanned uh, vehicle use. And it's needed to work commercially. Uh, if you ever want to, you know, take pictures of people's homes or whatever, if you're getting money for it, you need a license or if you work in any kind of government agency. And so here in Utah, at least all of our search and rescue teams are set up through the sheriff's department and that's who we're under. So technically, you know, we are government. And so we need that part 107 license. And what the, what the license is, is it teaches you all the laws about drone use, not technically how to fly, but just how to not get in trouble. Right. Not to get into a certain airspace, don't fly near airports or national parks or anything like that. Correct. Well, you know, suppose I'm just, you know, traipsing upon you guys, you're doing a search and rescue. I happen to have my fancy schmancy Mavic 2 drone. I'm a good Samaritan. I know about drones. I'm competent. Why couldn't I just deliver the needed device, help you guys out, say, hey, you know, hook this simplex repeater on me, on my drone. Uh, oh, no, I don't have a part 107 pilot's license. Can I just do this? Technically, if your search and rescue team is not associated with the county or the sheriff's department, you can. This part 107 is primarily needed just, you know, if you're commercially working or government employee. Right now, our, our, our sheriff uh, is trying to clear it. So we can use a few of our pilots that aren't part 107, but just hasn't happened yet. Well, that's interesting because I know that, you know, some drone pilots, not necessarily 107 pilots, you know, they're going to have variability with regard to their qualifications and all that. And I know that's controversial. I know now that people, all people who fly drones are going to have to register with the government, which is a whole different conversation, I suppose. But uh, right now, why did you guys pick 122 meters as the height that the drone could go to restore communications? I mean, why not be safe, go higher than 122 <laughs> meters just to be sure, you know? So 122 meters or 400 feet is the FAA allowed legal height. You can fly a drone without interfacing or interfering with the other airspace. Um, now there are waivers that you can use and we have used them in the past to fly above 400 feet. It just kind of makes it more complex. So for the simplicity of the study, we wanted to stay within the FAA allowed legal height and stay under 400 feet. You got these, you got these goggles, all right? Talking about these goggles over your head. So theoretically, you don't need to visualize the drones, but I thought you needed to actually have a direct line of sight between your eyes and the drone to properly keep within the law. So I would imagine that using these goggles, obviously I don't have a line of sight. Couldn't I just use these goggles, go into difficult terrain, not worry about where my drone is because with my goggles, I'm going to see where the drone is. Why, why do I need to worry about line of sight? Why can't I just use these goggles, find a lost person and just send my drone back, deliver the coordinates and we go rescue the person. Yeah. And that just comes in with the, the FAA and the legal standards that they have set. Typically when we use these goggles, we have a spotter near us that can see the drone and, you know, he's, he's our, he's our line of sight. Technically you're not supposed to ever, you know, go in super difficult terrain and get out of line of sight with a drone. It does happen, especially in search and rescue, 
Um, but to stay legal with the FAA, you know, if you have the goggles on and yes, you can see way better than the spotter can see this tiny little laptop sized drone a half mile away, you do need a spotter. Do you folks have authorization to fly at night? Uh, depending. On a day-to-day, no, but there are waivers. Um, and we just actually signed a, a standing waiver with the FAA that allows our search and rescue unit to fly at night whenever. And then we just have to turn in our, I guess, permissions or waiver after the fact. Well, and you were mentioning then that you're working under the auspices of the sheriff's department. Do they have helicopters? And if so, why worry about the drones? Why not just fly a helicopter, put one of those larger repeater systems that, you know, are pretty expensive and just go that way. And you can also look for a lost person. I think to answer that question, it's availability and expense. Oftentimes, you know, when we request a helicopter, they're out busy doing something else or, you know, to get the pilot and the crew together and fly it to where we need. That's a pretty big ask and a pretty big expense. Whereas this drone repeater system, it's very cheap. Most units now have drones as part of their, their toolkit and the repeater system itself can be built with about 50 bucks. And so technically, yeah, we could use a helicopter. It's just how often and, and if we want to keep them happy. Well, were there any drone simplex repeater failures in the communication in your study? In our study, none. Um, we, we launched the drone repeater system in all 10 areas. And in all 10 areas, we had communication restored. In four of the 10 areas, however, when it went directly above us 400 feet, it'd either be static or not clear. And we had to move the drone in the direction of where the rescuers were. And the furthest we ever had to go was, you know, about 400 feet as well. So not too far. We do have the capability of going clear out, you know, two, three miles. We could probably even hover right over where the rescuers were, but that was never needed. Right. I think your maximum distance, if I uh, remember, was about uh, nine kilometers out. Is that right? Something like yeah, that. That's far. Did you have anybody get hurt? No one got hurt. <laughs> we, uh, you know, we, we avoided the, the sites that were on the cliff face or the super scary. I mean, we did play a lot in slot canyons and, and do that, but the, the units we used were experienced search and rescue personnel. So they're very familiar with the terrain and, and how to stay safe. What are some of the lessons that you learned? What are some of the summaries with regard to this particular study and what would be your recommendations as authors going forward for people who are aspiring to use drones in their search and rescue operations? Yeah, the system seemed to work. In all 10 locations, we were able to get comms back. But then again, this is just the tip of the iceberg. This is more of a pilot study. Uh, we didn't objectively define the exact range you know, of the radio pre or post drone. Uh, we just did 10 areas. I think you know further studies are needed if you're going to really quantify what the drone does and how much extension that that gives you. But in terms of, you know, our terrain here in Southern Utah, some of the, the worst in the world in terms of cliffs and slot canyons, it was able to work in 10 of the areas. Some lessons we learned was batteries, uh, typical drone flights about 28 minutes and you throw a repeater on it, that brings it down to about 18 minutes. And so what we learned is we would have a big battery pack, a mobile charging station, you know, by the trucks at IC. And as soon as the battery expired, it would, you know, drop the drone down. We just throw a new one on, put the old one on the charger right back in the air. 
So it's pretty quick. So in, in order to have this kind of continuous communication, about three batteries in a mobile charging station were needed. You know, what I was wondering, speaking of the uh, idea that you have a large amount of batteries, a mobile battery charging station and a drone, I'm wondering if you could add a few battery stations and actually a few drones. And when drone A with its payload is about at 25%, you could send a second drone out with a simplex repeater. And then that first drone would come back and recharge it. And I just kind of thought of that right now. Would that be something feasible as well? That would be the ideal setup if you had two drones, because we found that, you know, after a couple 18 minute flights, those motors were working pretty hard in the drones. And so we'd like to let them cool down for two, three minutes. And so if you needed that continual communication line, yeah, if you had two drones, just kind of one up and one down, that would be the best setup. Do you have anything else to add to our conversation here? I just think kind of talking more about the legality of it. So you have the FAA and then the FCC that does the radios. The FAA does the drones. Then you kind of combine them together and you have this drone radio baby and all the laws kind of get messy. So it just if you're a search and rescue team thinking about implementing this, just be extremely careful that you follow all the laws, the regulations. For example, in radios, you can't just throw a repeater on any frequency. You need permissions there. Even having a payload on a drone, you need permissions somewhat. So just kind of the legality of it, just pay attention to that and contact me if you need any advice or help setting it up and we can get it going. Did you find through some of the iterations that you did to get government approval through Washington County, was that particularly difficult or bureaucratic or <laughs> it, okay? Maybe can't answer that. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it kind of feels like the DMV a little bit in terms of when you send in, in you know, an application or a waiver, it, it comes back in a month. And so it kind of really delayed what we were doing. You knock $1,500 off the price right now and I will take it off your hands. It's got to be now. Well, Let's I have the deal. The blue Let's book values. It. Let's do this thing. Three, two, one, Can five, I think about four, three, two, three. Now, 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 say it. it. Do it I'm now. Do it, it now. Thinking. Do it. Shake my hand. You will sell me this car. Shake my hand. Yeah. All right. Rock a doop a doop a doop bow. Suck a doo doo. Oh, what's Dwight up to? Oh, probably nothing. However, these drone laws are continuously changing. Back in December, a couple months ago in 2020, uh, they just passed some legislation where they made it easier for drones to fly over people and at night and with, uh, without line of sight. And so all the laws that are happening now are favoring the drone pilots, uh, making it easier, especially for search and rescue. Oh, very nice. So let's say if I were an aspiring drone pilot for a search and rescue group, it sounds like I would probably want to get my part 107 license. And that's more not because I'm a commercial person, but because it probably gives a drone pilot maybe a higher standard than a hobbyist. And then what else would I need to do to be a valued drone pilot member in a search and rescue? What, what, how did you do it? R107, definitely. That teaches you all the laws and what you can and can't do. Um, apart from that is practice. Drones are super tricky. <laughs> And, and if you're flying them, you know, in difficult terrain, uh, we've had several members, hobbyists, on our search and rescue unit in years prior wreck their drones, um, and some of them not recoverable just because they slammed them into a canyon wall, you know, whether they weren't watching the wind or weren't paying attention particularly to where the drone was, was piloting. 
So I think just practice, practice, practice. And then when you attach a payload to it, it even gets more complicated because you can't just jam it forward, jam it back. You have to very slowly move it around. Just kind of trial error, figure it out. And are you required as uh, drone operators to also have drone insurance in case you crash into somebody or whatnot? Not yet. <laughs> not a not part of the legal system yet. So, and that's the nice thing about search and rescue drone use is we're in the middle of nowhere. You know, a lot of times we're in the wilderness. We're not flying it over cars or people or buildings. And so, you know, if they do happen to wreck, it's typically into a tree, a canyon, somewhere where people aren't. Which is, which is nice. Actually, one last question I'm going to ask you because I'm noticing for those of you listening, Jake and I are talking on video and I can see he's got a poster of North Shore Hawaii. And I like to fly my drone in Hawaii. But one of the questions is there's certain areas that you cannot fly. And you being so close to Zion National Park, do you have to have special permission? Because my understanding is you really cannot fly a drone in a national park, but I'm sure for search and rescue operators, there must be some exception. Yeah, and state parks included, we live right by, the school is actually about a mile away from Snow Canyon State Park where drones are not allowed. So a hobbyist definitely can't just pull a drone out in Zion or Snow Canyon National Park and fly it. Luckily, you know, being part of the sheriff's department, it gives us a little bit more leeway that we have these kind of standing orders with the state park and the national park that if we deem it necessary, where life is at stake, we can use the drones without, you know, asking at that point. Well, Jake, thank you so much for your time, all your energy writing this. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here again. Yeah. Well, go feed that baby. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> I have the pleasure of introducing one of our emergency medicine residents, our senior residents par excellence, a great friend, Mike Loria. You may have heard of Mike in some other podcasts if you listen to podcasts such as MCRIT and some other various podcasts. And Mike, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, so if you wouldn't mind, just for the listeners, tell us a little bit about you because you've got quite an interesting history, even before getting into emergency medicine. Yeah, so um, I started out in the fire service in the early 2000s. I did my undergraduate, and then uh, I actually enlisted in the military, and I was a pararescueman in the Air Force for six years on active duty. So my job was essentially doing combat search and rescue for various special operations teams, as well as direct medical support for those teams on the ground conducting operations. And then got out in 2011, started working as a flight paramedic, doing critical care, flight transport work, and then ultimately decided that I wanted to go to medical school. Along the way, especially since being in the military, my focus, my academic focus and area of research has been on cognitive science, human factors, and ergonomics. So basically looking at how humans perform in very high stress environments and how we can improve that performance. That sounds really interesting because I think one of the things that may be still lacking somewhat in uh, the idea of wilderness medicine is that we don't often, although we're getting better at this, you know, train how to be leaders, train how to lead others, how to basically keep up cognitive skills during a stressful situation, which I think mm -hmm. is really interesting. Now, on the human level, I mean, you've done a lot. You're doing a lot. How do you keep 
family life balance together with all the things that you're going to do. Next year, you're going to be our EMS fellow. You're going to do a critical care fellowship. I mean, man, uh, our heads are exploding. <laughs> How do you do that? Uh, so I have, I'll be the first one to admit that I don't always do it very well. I'm still working on trying to find a balance. Um, it's been challenging in the sense that, you know, when I was in the military and doing the flight paramedic thing, I had tons of time and always jocked out really good time to like read and work out and actually do some chronic stress relief. Recently, I, you know, I don't know. I managed to get it all done, but I, I had to admit that I've, uh, I haven't been doing the greatest job of, of keeping everything in balance. I'm working on that. Yeah, I think we're all working on it. That's what human life is, is just a progression. It's a journey and whatnot. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of similarities between critical care, wilderness medicine, emergency medicine, and even more appropriately, search and rescue medicine. And as a PJ, you certainly have experience in uh, a lot of these realms. And, you know, what we're going to be talking about is managing stress. If you can manage stress, manage chaos. This is what we attempt to spend our lives doing is managing chaos, which we know is kind of a joke, but we at least try to mitigate it. And We've been in situations together where we, we might be dealing with a person who's about to have a cardiac arrest, what we would call a peri-arrest code situation. And you have this team with you to try to help that individual. And you're tired. It's 3 o'clock in the morning during a very busy night shift. You're really tired. The cognition uh, buttons are just being pressed all around. And while other things are clamoring for your attention in the main emergency department, you're trying to keep it together. For a lot of listeners, maybe they can't relate to the emergency department, but maybe, like in the case of what happened to me once in the middle of El Capitan, 2,000 feet off the deck, suddenly on this sheer cliff wall, we start to get lightning, thunder, it starts to hail. We go into a full-on blizzard at the end of May. And how to keep my team and myself sane is tricky, or even in a mountain rescue situation, it's the middle of the night because uh, most people don't call mountain rescue during nice daylight bankers hours. And you're trying to help some guys off the mountains. There's some people that are critically injured, and not only are some of the other people who were lost panicked, but those who might be around you might be panicking as well. The weather's getting crazy, so I think this would be a great time to talk about how you deal with stress and the whole idea of cognitive offloading. Do you have any wisdom for us? Yeah, so that's a fantastic question. And the answer, unfortunately, is somewhat complicated, but I think we can boil it down into kind of two things. There's the setup and then there's sort of the just-in-time stress management stuff. The setup and the way you prepare both long-term and short-term to work in these events is a little bit different. And I think there are several things that you can do there that are very, very helpful. And then there's like the just-in-time stuff. So there is the skills and whatnot that you can apply in any situation when the stress starts to build up. Did you know that acute stress can be measured objectively? You can certainly measure heart rate and breathing response. But... When people are acutely stressed, they actually might be breathing way too fast or very slow and shallow. There's a special test called functional MRI, fMRI of the brain, which can light up, if you will, when certain areas of the brain related to emotion or the stress response are stimulated. For instance, the fight, 
flight or freeze response is kind of a common thing that we hear about. And that is actually a response that occurs thanks to the amygdala, which is in the central part of the brain. That's a special anatomical part of the brain that helped early man survive in an immediate situation and still serves that purpose. But you'll also find that there's an increase in stress hormones, such as adrenaline and cortisol. These ramp up. In the fMRI, you'll also see a commensurate decrease of activity in the neocortex, which helps you make logical executive decisions. And you'll also see some diminution of lighting up, maybe darkening in this place in the hippocampus, which relates to memory, knowing where things are. In other words, when you're stressed, you'll forget where things are, and you'll forget logical sequences when the amygdala just gets overcharged and takes over. The chemical and electrical activity of the brain it can also be measured, and it can be measured by EEGs. There's an interesting study in PLOS one by Suarez in 2013, Dedevic in the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry 2009, Reynaud in Cognitive Neuroscience 2015, and there's actually a plethora of other published papers that discuss the actual changes of the brain in response to stress, and more importantly, how these responses can be mitigated. But let's go on. Usually, however, we measure those changes in an experimental setting with things like salivary cortisol or looking at uh, heart rate variability. Those are sort of the quantitative things that we see. And we see a pretty good correlation between those things, specifically heart rate variability or changes in heart rate variability uh, and subjective stress, people saying I felt really stressed or confused or overloaded and their performance deteriorating. And that, that triad sort of helps us understand that, that these things are all concurrent and happening together. It's definitely independent of things like IQ and how smart you are. It seems to be in various situations uh, relatively independent of level of experience as well. Most people think if they've been experienced that they're that sort of prevents it. Um, however, even the most experienced person when they're presented with a novel stressor that they have not seen before can find themselves very stressed out. So how do you deal with that? Well, now the things that you had asked about, things that you can sort of help with, um, in terms of preparation, long-term, how you train, how you prepare for these events, yes, there are definitely some things you can do. Um, so in terms of first and foremost, you had asked about cognitive offloading. So when your brain gets overloaded as you get stressed, there are some things you can actually do that reduce the amount of thinking that you have to do, the amount of processing that you have to do, the amount of accessing your working memory that uh, takes pieces of information that you're seeing and hearing and compares them with stuff that you know. And that processing, we kind of, can. I hate using the computer as an analogy, but we kind of call that your RAM, right? The, the, the memory that you're using actively. So one thing that we do, and we probably do it without even thinking about it or because people have showed us how to, to, to do it, is standardization and preparation. If you know that like your equipment is set up the same way every time, where specific pieces of emergency equipment are, how you set up your ropes and rescue systems is the same every time. That reduces a burden because 
I tell people it's kind of like chewing bubble gum and walking or, you know, tying your shoes and having a conversation. When you develop automaticity in behaviors or automatic behavioral patterns based on how you set up your equipment, that can be very, very helpful. So like in the dark, if you know that X, Y, and Z piece of emergency equipment are here, you don't really have to think about it, right? You know what's in this bag, you know exactly how to get to it. The other thing you can do, you can, you can provide cognitive offloading by simplifying a lot of your emergency procedures or how you set things up. So there are various rescue teams that despite the fact that there are a million and one ways to set up various res rope rescue systems, just using that as an example, various teams have come up with strategies and protocolized and standardized that for nine out of, nine out of 10 times when they're presented with X, Y, and Z situation, they will build a whatever rescue system. They'll create a three to one as sort of like their base, right? And then they will, based upon how the situation evolves, maybe change that system over, but they come up with standards so that when you get somewhere and you have a very time sensitive situation with a lot of moving pieces and someone has to emergently access the patient while they're accessing the patient, the rest of the team is building the recovery system or the rescue system. We know exactly what they're gonna build generally speaking, based upon those standard guidances. So we simplify out of all of the different systems we could build, our team does it this way. Unless there's a problem or unless we're faced with something different, this is our standard. That helps because you don't have to think about that. You don't have to argue about what system might work well. You just go to it. Um, so simplifying is actually very helpful as well. We can, in, in certain situations, I, I don't like to hammer on this too much, but in certain situations, Things like checklists can be helpful. But you're not done yet, right? Because what else do we have to do? Fast and, and IVC. IVC. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna go there. I'm gonna go M mode. I'm gonna freeze it. And then what you're gonna do is measure it. Here, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Get the calipers right, that one's a little over. Okay, okay press that down. So it's a 1.24, 1.5 is normal for someone for BSA? Yes. They provide a way, especially when you're moving from a position of relative stability to a position of potential danger, um, and you have a couple seconds, emergency checklists are actually a pretty good way to make sure that you have all your ducks in a row before you enter into that somewhat hazardous situation. They can be helpful in some situation. Basically, what you were saying is you have this checklist so that when you get into a situation, you're prepared beforehand to deal with a given situation, provided that that situation uh, falls into that rubric of your checklist. Exactly. And you had to kind of be careful how you build the checklist. And you also had to be careful about how you implement it, because not all situations need or would benefit from a checklist. But if you think through it pretty carefully and select those times correctly, the checklist can be pretty helpful. Now, in a situation where, you know, you want to develop a, a checklist, but in a lot of wilderness medicine situations, unlike emergency medicine, there are situations that are pretty rare with regard to their frequency of occurrence, yet they're pretty catastrophic. Uh, do you have a checklist for that? How do you formulate a checklist for a rare but potentially catastrophic event? 
Ah, so that's a good question. And what you're getting at there is the crux of what makes a good emergency checklist, right? Because what you're, what you're going for are avoiding those specific situations, the situations that are relatively rare, you don't, are very time sensitive, right? You don't have a lot of time to think about them or troubleshoot them, and the results are uh, catastrophic. So, for example, um, those of us in the medical field who do a lot of emergency airway management, and a, a good example or a good corollary might be the, the case of a emergency airway management, RSI, so rapid sequence intubation, where you run into a cannot intubate, cannot ventilate, cannot oxygenate situation, and you need to perform an emergency surgical cricothyrotomy, right? That situation doesn't come up that often, but you may want to have in your checklist the, the presence of a scalpel, bougie, or whatever other particular equipment you use for that emergency situation, because being without it, even though it's rare, would be essentially catastrophic. So those are actually the pretty much the items that you would want to think about that would be rare, very time sensitive, and catastrophic, and probably include those in the checklist. In this situation, how could we apply some of the principles that you've studied and talked about into the wilderness, austere, or limited resource care environment? I think there are other, you, you absolutely could apply the cognitive offloading stuff in particular. So looking at, uh, looking at the emergency equipment, looking at how everybody standardizes what they're wearing and what they're carrying and how we do things. That, for a lot of climbers, isn't necessarily, for example, in the search and rescue environment, I, I've talked to a number of organizations that um, everybody likes their, has, has grown up with or developed skills and the abilities in the mountains with different equipment setups, right? And not everybody enjoys doing it the same way or is used to doing it the same way because they've developed habits of their own. But some teams have actually, and if, especially if you go overseas, some of our European colleagues have standardized their, their loadouts, standardized their particular equipment, standardized their um, standardize their rucks or their, uh, their rescue gear so it is the same for that particular reason. Every morning when I wake up and through the window I can see the Matterhorn, it's a beautiful day. At Erzumat, it's like a big family for all of us. We do around 1,700 rescues a year. You have to stay focused. You never know how close you are to the limit. Every mistake you do could be your last. I think as far as the simplification of, of how we go about doing things, standardizing things across the rescue team in terms of how we build rescue systems, what the standard template would be for um, assessing safety, accessing the patient, providing emergency medical stabilization, and then retrieval of the casualty or the patient, how we think about those things, but also how we execute each one of those steps, making sure everybody's in the same page and standardizing those things, um, especially on teams. And this comes up, especially with um, prof professional teams that are not full-time paid teams. So teams that get together with people from various backgrounds, fire department, mountaineering and whatnot, um, volunteer teams, 
that, um, that may come at it with different approaches or different backgrounds. So making sure everybody in those situations is on the same page. There's various other things that you could do as well that I think totally apply in this environment. Wow. So there's actually a lot of questions to unpack uh, right there. First of all, uh, we can you know address these one by one, obviously, but we have a situation where maybe somebody is completely prepared. They have their checklist, their rucksacks are prepared, they are ready for action, but maybe there's some external stressor. It could be extreme cold or heat or some other situations and the individual is stressed. And how does one pre-prepare, mitigate their own internal stress in order to perform more effectively? Because you and I have talked about in the past that when, you know, people are stressed, the cortisol levels increase, the hippocampus shrinks. You can't remember what is going on. You get that fight or flight or freeze syndrome. The amygdala is just going crazy and the neocortex is just shrinking. So you can't make any decisions. And so stress comes out. And the other thing is you alluded to this. You have a various amount of players. You might have a fire department. You might have police. You might have search and rescue, uh, various other entities that are all together. And besides uh, using what we would call an incident command who may be down at the parking lot, how does one establish leadership, especially in the case where opinions are differing and emotions are uh, going kind of haywire. I don't know if that makes sense or uh, we're able to address that, but <laughs> we'll try. Yeah. So I'll take those on one at a time. So in terms of the individual stress management techniques, there are, I think there's stuff you can learn individually for just in time stress management, and you can build that into a larger training paradigm for yourself. So for example, there's a handful of actually very strong, very uh, evidence-based techniques that you can use on the spot to help mitigate or manage stress. So for example, the four pieces of the puzzle that we came up with that have strong evidence base, and I think are low-hanging fruit, we've termed BTSF. So breathe, talk, see, and focus. Breathe, talk, see, and focus. Breathe, talk, see, and focus. These are based in the literature from very high stress occupations, such as um, the military, NASA, our uh, athletic training colleagues, and, and sort of sports performance psychology. Well, sorry for this interruption, but I have to talk or give you guys a little bit more about this BTSF and what it really stands for. If you listen to a 2018 podcast that Mike did on the subject, he gave a little bit of a different memory jogger, and here it is. Enjoy it, live it, be it. Beat the stress. Do you know how many times I've been asked to say that? Well, no more. I'm through. I'm never going to say those stupid words again. I'm pretty the fool. Breathe is based in a lot of Eastern tradition and practice in the martial arts or meditative practices that they've been doing for thousands of years. But what we know now is actually, if you think about it, all of the autonomic processes that your body goes through, heart rate, blood pressure, all those things, they're very hard to control. However, our respiratory phase is something that you can actively control. And what we know is that when you enter into this a controlled respiratory phase, taking deep breaths in, 
holding them and then letting them out slowly, doing that three or four times. It's very interesting because what we see is it actually blunts the downstream effects of increases in sympathetic tone and activation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So that dump of adrenaline that causes your heart rate to go through the roof and causes that, um, that anxiety and you feel like you're getting overwhelmed and stressed. The, just a controlled respiratory cycle, like three or four controlled deep breaths can actually blunt some of those effects. So that was breathe. And as you sit there, just take a couple of nice big deep breaths, breathing in through the nose, and out through the mouth. As you breathe in through the nose, sense of taking in fresh air. Just a couple more times, taking deep breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth. T is for talk. So positive self-talk or changing the conversation that you have with yourself in your mind is actually really, really important. And it deals with this, this process of what we call reframing right? So you're reframing the situation as, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. Like I'm on the end of my rope. Like I have, I've lost my equipment. The patient's still like, you know, a hundred feet below me. Like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get to this person? It's like, okay, stop. I've been in tough situations before. This person needs my help. I may have lost X, Y, Z piece of equipment, but I have other things that I can use to access them, get down to them safely, repel down, whatever the situation is and that I need to do these things. So you're reframing the situation from something that's like outside of your control to something that you now actually have control over and you can actually mitigate some of those stressful or dangerous circumstances. And that actually gets to a key psychological principle called locus of control. So when you believe that things are completely outside of your control and everything's are going, everything is going haywire around you, that is actually very stress inducing. When you believe, then you change that referent and reframe things. It's like, okay, I've been in these tough situations before. I may not have been able to control the weather. I may not be able to control the fact that some things went wrong, but I can control this, this, and this. That restores a sense of control and actually reduces a lot of those external stressors. In addition, that self-talk can be very... Um, that can be essentially instructional. So when you get stressed out, if you can actually like boil down your thinking to very task specific things, and we call this like the loop, swoop and pull approach, right? When you're training like a three or a four-year-old like to tie their shoes, you like, they can say out loud, like loop, swoop and pull or whatever, stop, drop and roll. These things we teach people because they provide an internal dialogue. So words that associate with behaviors that are very simple and relatively easy to remember. And so you can do those with various rescue techniques. I use them with airway techniques all the time. So I'll tell myself that if, I, if I'm performing an emergency airway and I stick my laryngoscope in the mouth and I can't see anything, I tell myself, okay, lift the occiput, adjust my laryngoscope grip, adjust the larynx, so bimanual laryngoscopy, so adjusting, putting my hand on the patient's larynx and moving it around so I can see the airway, and then grab the bougie. So those are like the four things that I tell myself in my head that are task-specific that help with this positive self-talk. These are good points, so let's review them. So far, we have B for breathing and T for talking. We often teach in tactical medicine that something called tactical breathing is very helpful. This is where you internally count to four while you inhale evenly. 
you hold the breath for a count of four, then you exhale for another count of four, ending with breath holding for the count of four. This is also what is referred to as square breathing, and you do this for a few cycles. This technique has been shown to decrease autonomic hyperactivity. And it's not just used in tactical situations, but also in meditation, in the martial arts, many applications. Then we get to the T, the T for talking, self-talk, changing your locus of control, at least in your mind. You first stop, you examine the situation, and then you reinforce positive talk. Sometimes you actually might have to talk aloud, but don't worry about what others think. Do it. You're in a critical situation. The idea of stop, drop, and roll was brought up. Some people use similar mnemonics to get them through a difficult situation. And it's also been found that even if you're having a bad day, you can change that day or at least your perspective of that day by smiling a little. For some of us, it may take a little more practice and repetition, but actually you can change the way your neurons are firing, your perspective, your outlook. And you could therefore open your mind to more novel solutions for a given task at hand. Now, Mike is going to go on to the third letter, which is the letter S. We did B, we did T, now let's go to S, which stands for seeing or visualizing success. C, visualizing tasks is perhaps one of the most interesting and effective ways that in the moment can decrease stress. And it's very helpful because it does two things. One, it reduces the mind's focus on things that are distracting or negative thoughts. And it focuses the mind on the task specific stuff. So it's very hard to tell someone, you know, um, don't think about dying. Don't think about falling. Don't think about, you know, like all those bad things, right? It's hard to completely free your mind of that stuff in a stressful situation. But what you can do is fill up your mind with stuff that is helpful. And what's interesting about the C piece of things is that um, when we teach people to do these tasks, to, to visualize working through the steps of, of a rescue, building a rescue system, working through the steps in their mind of what it's going to look like if they're doing air rescue, hooking up the hoist, how they're going to position themselves next to the patient, what they're going to check before they actually begin to hoist the patient up. Those things, when you actually go through them in your brain before you do them, if you fMRI people and actually look at the blood flow to different parts of their brain when they're imagining things versus actually executing that task, they're accessing essentially the exact same neurological architecture. So when you imagine those things or walk through those things in your brain before you actually do them, regardless of what it is, whether it's a medical task, whether it's a technical rescue task, whatever it is, you're actually giving your brain like a rehearsal, a step up, like a rehearsal practice run before you're actually doing it. And that can increase confidence. It refocuses your brain on what's important and the critical steps of an activity, and it prepares you as well. The other thing is we know that, or we, we believe, we don't have super concrete evidence, but what seems to be a recurring pattern is often the hardest step, we say that the hardest step or the most difficult step in performing an emergency surgical airway is the decision to do the airway. And although that's, that's a little bit of, uh, of dogma that's handed down, what it seems to be is it, it, that, that pattern seems to repeat itself across 
high-risk occupations. Often the hardest part of a very high-risk activity that is indicated and emergent is the decision to just get on with it, to just do it, right? And so the last part, F, uh, for focus is uh, basically using like a catchphrase or a phrase in your brain that transitions you from the thought and preparatory cycle to the task execution cycle. And so, for example, the reason we called it F, which is because that's the word that I developed when I was in the military that I would say to myself, like before you're going to execute like a night free fall parachute jump, before you're going to actually enter a house with a team, before you're going to land on a combat search and rescue mission, I just take my couple deep breaths in route as we're getting ready. I will use my positive self-talk and think about the next task that I'm going to do, what those steps are going to look like. And finally, as we're landing, as we're about to enter the house, as we're about, as we're about to jump out of the back of the aircraft, I take one last deep breath and I say, okay, focus. And then you, that, is the, that is the term in my brain that transitions me from thinking about it in preparation to execution. So those are the four steps, breathe, talk, see, and focus. Now, those are things you can do in the moment, but as an individual, you can actually inoculate yourself to stressful situations by structuring your training individually or as a group to prepare for these situations, to actually make your training harder, to prepare in very challenging situations, and then practice using those psychological skills to calm yourself down when things get a little bit out of hand, and then going back and making those situations harder and harder and harder for yourself and increase both your technical skill proficiency, whether that's emergency medical skills, technical rescue skills, you name it, in conjunction with those psychological skills until ultimately you can perform and actually manage that cognitive bandwidth at very high levels of stress by implementing some of these psychological skills. So the S is for seeing in the power of visualization, and it is incredible. If you could imagine yourself doing the best airway or cripe that you've ever done, well, the literature supports that you will probably do a really good job on that procedure. In the same way for a rescue, visualize the exact steps. You mentally rehearse the procedure. Mentally rehearsing for that, or maybe mentally rehearsing for sending at that crag, or shredding down some steep champagne powder is dope, and it will improve your performance. This will get you into that focus stage. Distractions are minimized. In stress situations, there's a lot of things that distract. Thinking of failure, but with the focused attention that we've talked about, you are using a kind of Pavlovian trigger word, such as focus, or maybe you like fool, or send this, or a mantra. Slow is smooth, smooth and fast, whatever works, because that word will focus your brain's attention and you'll be laser-like. You're in the zone. The preceding three steps, the B, the T, and the S, will help you get into that final focus zone. Honestly, it could actually take a couple months to actually be able to see some benefits of this, but hey, why not start now? even speaks to a point to where, where as a team you've practiced or as an individual you've practiced, you've undergone scenarios so that you can get better at this, especially at this idea of focus, which, you know, is a difficult thing. I think you could probably enter into that 
second question that I asked about how do you institute leadership when you have a disparate amount of other people around you? And I think just having that aura of calmness and authority, not yelling at other people, not raising your voice, because, you know, usually people will double down against that or challenging people saying you're doing it wrong. People, you know, by nature are not going to accept that and they're going to oppose you in any way. But just having that aura, you mentioned martial arts and, you know, as you know, I do like martial arts and imposing that calm authority really helps with instituting leadership. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yes, yes, absolutely. So these are, this is sort of the edge of my experience and research where I'm just sort of dabbling in these things and doing a lot of reading and trying to practice. So I don't pretend to be a uh, master in this area at all. I don't pretend to know everything. These are just sort of my collective thoughts based upon reading research and my, my experience over the years and my experience now as a resident. First, um, I think it starts with using all those skills to manage your own stress. Because what we see is actually these principles of mirroring both your voice and your physical behaviors rub off on other people. So we've actually done experiments where you look at if, if things are going out of control and people are yelling or screaming, there's a principle called mirroring. If you start talking slowly and softly and directly, what you can actually measure is the decibel and the tone level in other people's voice around you will start to come down. Likewise, the behaviors. If you're running all, the, all over the place, grabbing things, throwing equipment all over the place, um, that behavior rubs off on people. But if you are calmly demonstrating authority, standing at the edge of the bed or standing in a position and calmly and swiftly and efficiently moving about things, people mimic that behavioral pattern. So I think it starts there. Next especially in cases where you have a lot of different people. So um, if you're in the military, you're working with some army people, some Navy people, some Air Force people, some whatever people. If you're in a civilian situation where you're working with um, law enforcement, fire, um, volunteer rescue, et cetera, you're coming at people with different levels of experience, different focuses who are all naturally skilled and experienced. And I assume that they are smart and really good at their jobs but they may not all be on the same page in terms of what you have to get done. I think there's sort of three things, three general things that I think about in terms of getting these people together and getting everybody on the same page and leading them in the right direction. One, it starts with emotionally getting everybody on the same page in terms of like just giving people orders or driving data into people or instructions into people doesn't work nearly as well. It seems as driving them emotionally. So if you start out with a commonality, for example, there is a really sick kid on the side of this mountain. His life is in jeopardy. We have to work quickly together as a group to come up with a solution and to make this happen. Everybody, the law enforcement people, the rescuers, the fire, like everybody can understand that. And everybody wants to help. Everybody came there to help someone, right? So now you're getting them down to a common emotional situation where they want to be involved and they want to help people. Then you get down to sort of the why. And this, this actually deals with a lot of Simon Sinek's work on leadership and, uh, and understanding sort of how to drive people in a direction, right? Um, when you explain why you're thinking and 
why you want to do things a certain way, intelligent and well-trained individuals tend to understand that as sort of like the night is the key of why you're asking them to do things. When you explain why to people, they tend to get on board much more than if you just start giving them instructions because it explains to them your thought pattern. It also allows them to see holes in your thought pattern. So if you have someone with experience in a particular area and you're explaining to them why you want to send a hasty team up the trail before you do this, that, and the other thing, before you organize the teams in a different direction to provide for search and rescue activities. But that is, you have someone with a lot of search and rescue experience in that particular environment that you may not have. When you explain the why to them, it can also help them to adjust your thought pattern of why that might not be right. Why, why you may, might there may be a better plan. That can be super helpful um, when you get to the when you get to the end of this whole sequence. If you've already established the why, you can go back to people with discrete experience in those areas. So in 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 our, in our environment in the hospital, I might be talking to the nurse captain, the experienced nurse that's helping you run a cardiac arrest, the respiratory therapist in terms of ventilation management, um, the surgeon or the consultant who is helping you out. When you explain why you wanna take the steps you wanna do and then go back to them and be like, you know, I explained to you the why and sort of my plan. What do you think about that? Is there something I'm missing? That can also be helpful. The second part, so the first part is basically about like getting their emotions involved, getting everybody on the same page, getting everybody's goals aligned. The second part is about giving them discrete data or things, information that will help them logically make decisions or explain your logical thought process. This, the last part is basically um, explaining to them the discrete steps that you want to take. So for example, if we were running a cardiac arrest, it'd be like the, the giving them the data right? So let's say you get the steps going. People are doing CPR. We have IV access. We have the pads to defibrillate some, uh, someone on, some, on, a, on a person's chest. That second part is like, this is a, hey guys, I don't know if you heard, but this is a 69-year-old gentleman. He was witnessed to complain of chest pain, grab his chest, go down on the ground, and bystander CPR was immediately started. Fire was there in less than five minutes, and his total downtime at this point is 15 minutes. That is, that is a very different story, and that aligns people's uh, understanding of the situation very differently from this is a 80-year-old individual who was found down uh, at home for some unknown period of time. The, they've been in asystole now for an hour and a half, right? Those two descriptions, painting those two pictures are very different in terms of what we do and what that, that particular person might be a candidate for in the next therapy is that person might be a candidate for in the next 15, 20, 30 minutes. And then describing your discrete path in terms of this next steps you wanna take. All right, guys, so this person been down in 15 minutes. He, his presenting rhythm was, um, ventricular fibrillation, and I see V-fib on the monitor right now, let's prepare to defibrillate the patient, right? Or in the situation of like a rescue situation, for example, um, a situation might be, you might be giving data about where the person is located, how you might access them, and what your plan generally is given the data from the situation. They've been out, they've been missing for 48 hours, or they've been missing for two hours. Data about the weather, the wind speed, wind chill, precipitation, anticipated weather at the summit is going to be X, Y, and Z. 
in the next 30 minutes, two hours, two days. Then your plan in terms of how you intend to mitigate those risks and how you intend to locate, access, treat, and evacuate the patient. I think those are, are is, a, is a general like mindset of emotionally get everybody on the same page and align goals. Give the smart people the data they need to understand the situation and paint them a picture. And then give them the discrete steps, the, the tasks and priorities of work that you want them to do is a pretty good frame of thinking about these situations. It seems to be working pretty well, um, but I need to do some more research and we need to test this whole thing out. And we've talked about pre-briefing and we've talked about being in the situation, but even post, you know, giving positive feedback to people so that they would want to work with you again. Is that something that you would engage in as well? Just positive feedback afterwards. And, you know, even if things were kind of screwed up, you can still kind of make it so that, you know, it isn't so much a poop sandwich, but, uh, you know, something to learn for the next time. Yeah, absolutely. To recap, get the team emotionally engaged and align goals. Appeal to their sensibilities as you give a brief summary. Reason with them in regard to your thought processes and allow them to participate in the decision-making process as much as possible. Give data to the smart people and start delineating how the task should be carried out and delegate, delegate, delegate. Make sure you review frequently the things that have been done and where you're going. And if possible, please solicit ideas from the team. The emotional component is the thing to start with because none of us are really Mr. Spock. Mr. Spock, any comment? Help me, Spock! If you're interested, you can also listen to Mike, who also did a podcast with Scott Weingart on the MCRIT podcast, episode 220, which was back in 2018. And some of the things that we discussed today are on that podcast. And then there's a few other things that we didn't talk about that are on that particular podcast. So if you're interested, please look into that. And we invite any of you listeners out there who might have some different viewpoints to please contact us and let us know what you think because this is an evolving subject. How do we optimize our minds and how do we deliver the best leadership? Well, Mike, thank you very much for this informative discussion. Oh, no problem. It was a pleasure. So here are some excerpts from our 2021 Winter WMS Conference. Although the format was virtual, it went very well. And I had the privilege of discussing or actually doing a workshop on wilderness survival, which can be a challenge to be interactive in a virtual format. But it worked out somehow. It was very well received. And I actually had the participants in our workshop show me how to do certain things. Well, at any rate, there were a lot of great talks. And although this excerpt is not comprehensive, I just want to give you a few snippets from the presentations that are cutting edge. There are definitely some other excellent topics, as I've mentioned, but because of the lack of time, they're not included. But if you do like this idea, we can present them at the next podcast. So first up, Peter Hackett and Grant Lippman giving us an update on some very interesting papers related to high-altitude illness. Next up, I am excited and honored to introduce two leaders in the field of wilderness medicine research to talk to us about updates in mountain medicine research right now. We are honored to have Dr. Peter Hackett and Dr. Grant Lippman. First paper we chose, a cetazolamide does not alter endurance exercise performance. 
3,500 meters altitude, or that's around 12,000 feet. Why is this an issue, this issue of how does acetazolamide affect performance? Two main reasons. One, if it actually decreases performance, it can be a detriment to our, our patients, our clients, especially if they're athletes. And secondly, if it's an ergonomic aid, it makes a difference in uh, things like competitions that are sanctioned by UIAA or the World Anti-Doping Association. It's been unclear for a long time. In various studies, there's been conflicting results. The first study that really looked at this was in acclimatized uh, people, only four climbers on Everest in the Western Coombe. This was a study we did way back in 1981 when we were on the mountain. And we found that uh, acetazolamide, 250 milligrams twice a day, decreased performance in two of the subjects and didn't in, in another two of the subjects. Uh, so it was, it was a bit inconclusive. Uh, one of the more interesting things was even at that altitude in well-acclimatized people, acetazolamide still produced a significant bicarbonate diuresis. And that was an interesting finding. Uh, subsequently, studies were undertaken by the Birmingham Research Expeditionary Group led by uh, Bradwell. And they did two studies, one at 3459, one at 4559 meters, which is about 15,000 feet. And they looked at maximum uh, VO2 in uh, 20 subjects in each group, double blind and placebo controlled, and found that there was a decrease in VO2 max, especially in the older age group. Uh, other scientists felt that this wasn't particularly applicable since um, no climbers and trekkers operated VO2 max, and what did it really mean? So there was a, certainly a need for more research. The other issue is whether it's, uh, you know, a doping agent, so-called doping agent. The, uh, there was one, page, one letter to the editor in, in the Wilderness Environmental Medicine that said, uh, please be careful because it is on the World Anti-Doping Association list of proscribed substances, but that's only because it's a diuretic and therefore it can mask uh, urine tests. The UIAA has taken the stand that they adopt all of WADA's policies and therefore they will not allow acetazolamide in any UIA sanctioned activity unless a therapeutic authorization is obtained. So getting back to this, the study, this was a nicely controlled acetazolamide uh, 250 or a placebo uh, twice a day uh, with ascent on the, after two and a half days of acetazolamide use. And uh, there were two exercise periods, one at uh, two hours after ascent and one at 22 hours after ascent and evaluation of uh, mountain sickness scores. The subjects were all uh, young males. So it's a total of a 30 hour simulated altitude exposure in a chamber at uh, 3,500 meters. And the results, uh, we can see here in this graph, uh, looking at the time trial duration, that is uh, for both the acetazolamide and the placebo groups at both uh, number one, which is two hours after ascent, and number two, which is 22 hours after ascent. And you can see from the graph that there really is no significant changes in the time trial duration. That is, acetazolamide did not make them faster cycling or make them go longer cycling. Um, and it's pretty clear from this. One of the nice things about these results is that it was done at a realistic percentage of VO2 max and not at maximum exercise. So it more closely uh, 
simulates real climbing or trekking. Yeah, I thought it was interesting on these results that the average time trial is about 11, 10 to 11 minutes a mile, which is still moving pretty fast at these altitudes, but it is something that could be approachable to people who are not 22 uh, and highly trained athletes. But I found these, these findings interesting because we knew that uh, cesolamide has a direct and indirect effect on uh, ventilation, so it increases oxygen arterial saturation. So it might seem kind of uh, counterintuitive that more oxygen in the blood, uh, you wouldn't think you would think would lead to increased performance, but uh, there's really no change despite higher oxygen levels in those with acetazolamide. And the theory is that because this uh, mild uh, uh, metabolic acidosis that acetazolamide induces, that uh, when you actually look at the muscle spindle, the sarcomeres, there's decreased binding at the myosin-actin interface, and so that's going to lead to greater muscle fatigue and uh, and muscular exhaustion in this acidotic state. The other thing to note is that the placebo group, four out of the 10 had mountain sickness and they were still able to do pretty well in the time trial. So that mild to moderate mountain sickness uh, didn't interfere with their performance. Limitations of the study was very well controlled, but it only included young males. And as uh, Joyce and I uh, wrote in a letter to the editor, uh, their data indicated that the older folks were much more likely to be impacted. So. This particular study that we're looking at now has to can't be generalized to an older population. You need to take that into account. There were only 10 people to, to begin with, and it was a relatively low altitude of between 11 and 12,000 feet. So what does this mean? 500 milligrams a day of cetazolamide didn't alter endurance exercise, submax endurance at 3,500 meters in this particular population of young males. And presumably 250 milligram per day, the usual dose, uh, would have had even less of an effect. In other words, more likely to show no altered endurance. It also tells us that acetazolamide is not performance enhancing. It is not doping. And I wish that some of our colleagues would get off of this uh, idea. It is not a doping agent. It does not appear to impair endurance exercise and therefore alleviates concerns of some pres prescribers, especially sporting events. But still, there needs to be more work done on the impact of acetazolamide exercise in women, in older folks, and maybe at higher altitudes. For the uh, next article, we're gonna talk about exercise-associated hyponatremia, or EAH, and uh, how to treat it with oral versus intravenous hypertonic saline. And EAH is uh, commonly reported and talked about often in endurance events, and it's seen both at sea level and at high altitude, and it's a dilutional state where you have lowered salt levels, which usually is from one of two causes, either increased amount of hypotonic fluid that basically dilutes out your salt, or you have uh, inappropriately high antidiuretic hormone levels, ADH, which causes a decrease of excretion of water. So you're retaining too much water, which dilutes out your salt level. And uh, one of the reasons we're talking about this at high altitude is we know that at high altitude, people have a decreased plasma volume and decreased plasma volumes is one of the uh, strongest non-osmotic stimuli to increase your antidiuretic hormone levels. And this has been thought about in the AMS pathophysiology for a long time. Uh, Peter here had published in the late 70s and early 80s, looking at the edemas of high altitude and these fluid shifts. And he looked at uh, 102 people at, uh, at high altitude, about 14, 15,000 feet, and uh, saw that with increasing severity of acute mountain sickness symptoms, there's gonna be a decrease of urinary 
frequency. And uh, there's going to be an increase of edema as well as weight gain. And he, Peter went ahead and did some st amazing studies in the 70s where there are freezing plasma. What did you freeze with, Peter? Uh, liquid nitrogen? We, we were able to find liquid nitrogen in Kathmandu, believe it or not. Amazing. So <laughs> freezing blood at uh, Ferche uh, in liquid nitrogen, shipping it back to London, get analyzed. And so people have been looking at this for 45 years. And in the early 90s, they're seeing that there's increased ADH levels with uh, more symptomatic people exercising at high altitude. So this is this concept that's been brewing for a while. And uh, there's a great study that looked at these symptoms of high altitude. Lopaki, in about 15 years ago, looked at 51 people in a chamber. And uh, on the top line there, you can see that people got really symptomatic very quickly. And then the bottom segment of this figure, the folks who were the most symptomatic with mount sickness had the highest rates of ADH that increased really early. And uh, people who are sick had these ADH levels that stayed really high, so had greater amounts of fluid retention and edema, which kind of uh, throws me into a pathophysiologic rabbit hole. The question uh, almost of a chicken of the egg is the ADH elevated in those with AMS because it's reactionary to people's headache and nausea which are stimulators of ADH, they retain more fluid and it becomes this vicious cycle? Or is ADH actually one of the causative mechanisms that's inappropriately secreted? And so this high ADH leads to a fluid overloaded, overloaded state, and that's going to be causing the edema and the symptoms. Um, this latter seems a little more likely because a, a high plasma volume from the high ADH should suppress further ADH secretion, uh, but sort of a uh, a thought that distracts a little bit from EAH, but I'll get back there in a second. Uh, so the, the examination of oral hypertonic saline to, uh, or oral, oral hypertonic fluids to treat EAH have been going on for the last uh, 20 years or so. And one of the first case series found three severely altered folks suffering from EAH and uh, Siegel gave them uh, three bouillon cubes crushed into four ounces or half a cup of water. And these two individuals drank it, actually resolved their severe EAH. Uh, there are, which led to, this thought led to two further studies, both after the 100 mile Western States Endurance Challenge, where they gave uh, asymptomatic finishers with EAH, either 100 mLs of 3% sodium chloride or the equivalent uh, amount of sodium that they drank. And they looked to see how they resolved. Now remember, none of these people were symptomatic. So they looked at their sodium level in the first study by Rogers, the, uh, the sodium went up two points, but there's no change in the oral one. Uh, that, had, that had 14 people. In the follow-up study by Owen in 2014, they had 26 people, again, all asymptomatic. And they gave them either the 100 mLs IV or by mouth. And while they did not find any change in sodium, they found a plasma volume increase in those with IV by 9%, but only a 1% increase with oral. Now remember, increasing your plasma volume is going to cause your ADH to actually uh, lower. And so you're gonna be able to then excrete urine and free water, which will decrease the symptoms. The concern is that an oral load of salt is gonna stimulate the uh, sodium sensors in your uh, oral pharynx in your gut, which will cause the kidneys to secrete salt and so you're going to retain a little bit of free water, which will lead to a slower resolution of your volume uh, and your uh, ADH secretion. So these were all done in asymptomatic people, but it hadn't been done in, in uh, symptomatic people, which led to this study, which we're looking at by Bridges, that was just published last year. 
and they looked at Ironman triathlete finishers who were had symptomatic EH. They were collapsed. They had to be carried stumbling uh, into the med tent, and they randomized 19 people to either 100 mLs of IV hypertonic saline or 100 mLs of the same solution mixed with a little bit of crystal light, and they looked to see who would have resolution of symptoms um, and be cured, basically, the fastest. And they found that, surprisingly, the oral hypertonic saline were 26 minutes faster to be discharged from the medical tent compared to the IV group. The, uh, the discharge criteria is that they had to walk, they had to be able to pee, and they had to be able to eat and drink. So they were really much better. So this surprising outcome was really let them know that uh, oral hypertonic saline is really no worse than IV hypertonic saline in curing the symptoms. This was a couple of limitations. as a small group of people, only 19. It wasn't powered for effect. It wasn't blinded. And 20% of the people who got oral still vomited, had to be switched over to IV. But when they did a analysis, including or excluding those who vomited and they looked at sex as well, there's really no difference in outcomes. So what does this mean? Uh, you know, as Peter mentioned earlier, having a, uh, a differential in your mind and the different causes of both an altered mental status at high altitude, as well as the symptoms of acute mountain sickness, you should take the history into account and consider EAH uh, in the differential. There's a history of a lot of fluid intake. Um, that being said, nausea, vomiting, pain, all that can increase your ADH and lead to exercise-associated hyponatremia. And consider carrying some salty snacks or sodium in your packs because it appears that oral hypertonic fluids work as well as symptomatic. The, um, the amount of sodium is important because at 100 mLs of hypertonic saline have 51, milli, is 51 millimoles of sodium, which is about 1,200 milligrams of sodium. That equates to one bouillon crushed, uh, cube crushed into half a cup of water or a ramen packet in the same amount. So starting to think about carrying your first aid kit. Here are the take-home points. First of all, for high altitude, acetazolamide is likely not going to be a performance-altering substance. It's not going to enhance your performance, but it may not necessarily decrease your performance and should not be considered as a doping agent. The study that was presented had a limited amount of participants, and they're all young males. Who knows if it works in the same way with women or with older subjects? And then lastly, oral hypertonic fluids do work well for EAH, and you can consider EAH in the differential diagnosis of altitude-related illnesses. So another very interesting topic is women's specific issues in the wilderness, addressed by Christian Coffey, Lauren Altshu, and Emily Sagalin. And there's a guest speaker at the end, and you have to tell me who that is. Now, this is a comprehensive topic that had a lot of pictures, and this snippet probably won't do justice to it, so I really encourage you to look at the presentation from the WMS conference webpage. But here we go. First, Christian, let's do it. This workshop is called Women's Specific Issues, but I changed it to Women's Specific Considerations in the Wilderness. Uh, and I hope that regardless of, regardless of how you identify or which body parts you have, that you will take away some pearls uh, from this talk today. So quickly, our outline of what we're gonna do. Uh, Dr. Alshu is gonna start us off with female physiology and how this is affected in different types of environments. Then we're gonna go over the P's and you're gonna learn some tricks and gadgets out there that could help make your next trip uh, a more pleasurable one. Then we're going to have time just as a group discussion to talk about specific women's health uh, questions and concerns in the wilderness. And then finally, together, 
we will discuss as a group new additions that we might want to add to our medical kit at the end of the workshop. So I will hand it over to Lauren. So we're going to talk about some of the specific uh, adaptations that we have as women um, that kind of change how we respond in certain altitude and heat and cold environments. Um, so the, the biggest thing that you see, especially in uh, exercise potential and exercise differences, is our, our VO2 max is going to tend to be lower than men of the same, same size. And that's because we tend to have lower hemoglobin, lower blood volume, and lower cardiac output. Um, and then, so that all translates through into a lower um, max exercise capacity. But in certain environments, we actually have some advantages. So first off, we tend to have more fat mass than muscle mass on a, a per a size basis as well, which basically means that in moderate uh, cold environments, we're going to tend to retain our heat much, much better. The downside is in severe cold environments, we don't quite have as much uh, skeletal mass to do a lot of shivering, but for that moderate uh, temperature changes, we're going to be better off. Um, we're also going to tend to experience more critical edema at altitude because of that additional fat mass than to muscle mass ratio. In heat ad adaptation, so we have a lower basal sweat weight, which basically means that we can are faster and more adaptable to temperature variations. And so we're going to be able to more quickly get to, uh, to tolerate hot weather. And we're tending to not get into dehydrated uh, because we're not going to be sweating out all of our, our plasma volume in to get to that uh, change in temperature. And then last off on altitude. So progesterone it increases respiratory rate leads to faster climatization. It's essentially by increasing respiratory rate is the same thing as the acetazolamide does or what we think acetazolamide does. Uh, we're also going to tend to have less periodic breathing, which is our nighttime breathing variation that you're going to see in folks who are at, uh, during adaptation. But overall, interestingly, our rate of acute mountain sickness is actually the same as men, which is kind of unique because probably says there's some much other, other physiologic stuff that we don't really know about uh, going on in that case. Um, so a whole bunch of different systems, a whole bunch of different changes in environment. Overall, it's not any better, it's not any worse, it's just different. Excellent, thanks. So that's our basic overview, and now we're gonna talk about the P's. Uh, and I first learned about the, the P's, and you can call it P power, whatever you'd like, a little different than power tools, like this table saw that Dr. Sagalin's working on at 30 weeks pregnant, which is pretty amazing. Um, but there are different P's out there. We're gonna break them down issue by issue, again, sharing uh, some things that we've learned over the years, and we invite uh, whatever you, may want to share with us. How we respond. So you'll have to listen to the entire lecture to figure out what the P's are. But briefly, there's a discussion about urination or peeing. And then what we'll do is we'll jump on over to menses or the other P is having periods and then improvise tampon use with that, which is always very interesting how to improvise stuff that you would normally not think of. And it's a good idea to carry tampons in your med kit. Then we'll finish off with pregnancy. The photos that I have here is us teaching my daughter early on how to kind of squat and pee. That's actually in Sequoia National Park, which is a lot of fun. Uh, but I hope that as she does grow up and gets a little bit better at uh, potty training, that we'll be able to, to share some of these other tricks with her too. And the picture on the right is actually um, a pair of uh, split crotch bloomers that wealthy Victorian women used to wear. And that is because they couldn't really sit down or bend down to use the bathroom in their hoop skirts. Seems kind of old school, but actually there's some more modern day products out there for this. So uh, we do not have any disclosures. I don't have any stock in any of these different companies, uh, but there's a few options out there that we're gonna share. I know for years I heard of women that would make their own pants. They take a regular pair of pants and then cut them down the center and put in their own uh, zippers to make it themselves. And now there's several companies out there that can do that for you. 
So uh, one of the several of these companies are up here. SheFly is an example on the left, and ChickFly is on the right. Some of them actually have products out now that you can purchase. Others are still in the Kickstarter phase. Um, but again, most of them have zippers that go all the way from the front all the way to the back. So you can do your business, whatever type of business you need to do. Um, and then with a ChickFly, it doesn't have a zipper in it. It's actually made with two overlapping folds that you can use and they kind of snap back in place. You can also learn to do this on your own. And I can see in the chat that some people are saying, learning to pee on a bike while racing, that's pretty amazing. Or learning how to raise your leg, I guess, like a dog. So there's a lot of different things that that you can uh, try on your own. We'll talk about that in a second. And again, if you uh, don't have access to these products or just want to save some money and you're a good seamstress, then you can probably just do your own sewing and make them. This makes it much easier, particularly if you are climbing or you know in colder temperatures where you probably aren't going to be wearing, wanting to wear a hiking dress or something that's more easily removable. I think these pants are a great idea. And I'd like to know that although we could be in the wilderness, some of the problems can be getting to the wilderness in your car. So what do you do if you're on a highway and you have to pee and you pull over on the side and there are no bushes or anything where you can hide? What do you do? Well, I have a solution for that. You have to tell me what you do. So there's also some other devices out there. There's been female urination devices out for a while. Uh, I think Freshette was one of the first ones available. And now if you just go on Amazon, you can buy any and, and everything that's out there. Uh, the ones I have pictured here are made out of silicone. They actually fold down and really small. So you can put them in your backpack or your purse or whatever you need. Uh, and they essentially, you hold them up against your body and you just start to pee and it comes out the end. Uh, and it works really well as long as you've got a good seal uh, up um, more proximally. And in addition to that, there's some other eco-friendly options for wiping. We know that whenever you're wanting to pack in and pack out, you want to avoid extra things that could hurt the environment and that's going to uh, be more weight and space in your pack. So these, there's these pretty nifty antimicrobial pee cloths, that's the thing in the center, that you can use. And after you do, again, do your business, you can wipe yourself down. It has a, the cloth itself is impregnated with a material uh, that's antimicrobial. It's black on one side, and then you can have a fun design on the other. So you can actually use this over and over again, and it clips closed. Um, so this is a, another great option. Yes, another folks are saying best if used proximal. And then another thing that I will share with folks is you can actually learn to pee like a boy. Someone taught this to me. I, uh, I don't recommend you trying it the first time over a toilet. Probably try it out a few times in the shower because it takes a while to get used to it. Any other, were there any other good tips or tricks for the, the pee section, ladies? I like this last oh. one. So saying basically if you're on Dymox, you're going to be peeing a lot more than usual. You may need the two liter Nalgene and not the uh, just the one liter for your overnight uh, in your tent pee bottle. So good, good suggestion there. I like that one. <laughs> I would also say if you're going to urinate in Nalgene, this is for everybody. Um, just be real clear about which one's their pee Nalgene and which one is not your pee Nalgene. Absolutely. Yeah. Some people will wrap something around the, the pee Nalgene. So it's not just the color because in the middle of the night, if it's dark, you don't want to accidentally pee in your drinking Nalgene. All right. And then if you do decide to go with tampons, though you have to deal with the weight and the bulk, it is something that there are a million and one uses to deal with. And so this is a great blog out there that has a bunch of different alternate uses. Here's just a few. Um, from on the top center, we've got fire starter material. 
Our top right there, we've got all sorts of bandaging, packing. Um, our bottom right, which is one of the most unique ones, is actually doing a blow dart. I'm not sure what, how I would, if I would actually use that, but it's something fun to play around with. Uh, we've got an, a water filter here in the top middle, or excuse me, the bottom middle, and then the bottom left. They're obviously great bandaging, great hemorrhage material. So many, many things that you can do with a tampon other than just what its intended purpose was. Um, and so just like our duct tape, we want to have a million and one uses for everything. A couple other points about periods. So if you're on a longer expedition, if you're doing something like a overwinter in Antarctica um, or an expedition where you're going you're gonna to have a very hard evac, um, you definitely want to have pregnancy tests in your medical kit. Um, we already talked about how menses can be irregular, but this can be an environment where you don't want to stay when pregnant, just given potential complications. And then lastly on periods, I want to dispel a myth that I think I saw brought up in the, in the comments as well, which is there is no increased risk of bear attacks during menses. Uh, this was some uh, old, old data and some bad data that has since been uh, disproven. So you are all good going backpacking any time of year um, and any, any time of year cycle. What about pregnancy and wilderness activities? Um, so in general, I mean, the, the the general goal or recommendations out there is to kind of keep the heart rate or maternal heart rate under 140. Um, but that is super variable. And I, let me let me preemptively say this. These are the kind of the general ACOG recommendations. Every single person is different and your level of exercise and activity is really dependent on how active you are pre-pregnancy, you know, if you're a professional athlete and you're used to exercising for a long periods of time, every single day, your, your pregnancy experience is going to be much different than somebody who is not a professional athlete. I would not try to become a professional athlete while you are pregnant. However, it's probably not the, not the time to do it. Um, so in general, the recommendations are, you know, when you're out and about trying to keep the maternal heart rate under 140, and a lot of that is to really limit the rise of core body temperature. Um, and, um, it's amazing with all of the physiological changes, um, when you're pregnant, getting your heart rate up, um, can happen a lot faster, um, with less exercise. So, um, I'll throw that out there. Um, you know, in general, um, the idea is there's this, this idea of the talk test, you know, if you're, if you're able to talk and have a conversation while you're exerting yourself, whether that's hiking or running or whatever, then you're probably in a good spot. But if you're working out so hard or you're, you're working so hard that you can't have a reasonable conversation, um, then maybe, uh, you have to limit that to a, a shorter period of time. Um, obviously you don't want to be, um, doing a lot of supine exercise after about the fourth month, because you have this large belly or starting to be become a large belly. Um, there's obviously a lot of, uh, issues with pregnancy and travel that we won't really get into in this, um, here, um, we'll just kind of try to focus on activities. Um, there are obviously benefits to exercise in pregnancy. There's, um, decreased rates of gestational diabetes, decreased rates of C-sections, operative vaginal deliveries, and, uh, better postpartum recoveries. Um, in general, it's recommended, you know, aerobic exercise for 35 to 90 minutes or so three to four times a week during pregnancy is pretty safe, um, with women with a singleton. Um, um, and, uh, exercise is generally associated with, um, higher incidence of vaginal delivery and a lower incidence of C-section, um, as, as seems reasonable, um, 
any ACOG rec recommends any activity um, or activity with a high risk of falling or abdominal trauma should generally be avoided in pregnancy. So some pregnant women may actually be able to climb with a specialized harness, and some people would even dare to ski or snowboard, but this is pretty high risk, and it's up to the individual. Cycling's probably fine, as well as running, although the larger the belly, the more uncomfortable running can be. Easy hiking and backpacking, totally reasonable. Water-based exercise, such as swimming, is really good, but in the case of surfing, you don't want to put too much pressure on that belly, especially in the late trimesters, and don't fall on the board. One thing that I did want to just touch on are some things water-related that probably aren't the safest to do. We know that with scuba diving, the general rule is don't do it. There's been case reports of women who have found out they've been pregnant after they've gone scuba diving and their children have turned out to be just fine. But in general, we don't have an ability to do studies and see the, the effects um, on fetal uh, circulation and risk for decompression. So the general rule is wait your nine months and dive later. Water skiing and uh, other types of uh, board sports in general aren't recommended because of the rapid acceleration, deceleration injuries and potential to cause, uh, again, abdominal trauma. Additionally, if you're jet skiing or some of these sports have the potential to uh, inject water up into the vagina and can cause uh, problems too if you are pregnant. So it's usually not recommended. And here's a few other caveats with respect to pregnancy and altitude. As many of you know, I can give an entire hour lecture on this topic. The short answer is uh, there's super minimal data that you know doing anything up to like 8,500 feet is, um, is safe. We did a study with almost a thousand pregnancies half the women had gone to high altitude during their pregnancy and half of them didn't. This was a survey. It's got some, some limitations, but there was no difference in pregnancy complications in the women who had spent time at high altitude during pregnancy versus those that hadn't. And there were some, even a small number of women who had been to over 6,000 meters. Although I can't, I'm not going to say it's safe to go to high altitude. Um, I will say that if you live probably above 10,000 feet, and you have your whole pregnancy at that altitude, we know that that's associated with complications, but short-term exposures are probably fine. People have extrapolated from long-term exposures during pregnancy, and that's why we tend to be cautious. Lastly, here's an interesting presentation called No Backboard, Now What? New Principles of Spinal Cord Protection, presented by my friend Jason Williams at the University of New Mexico, as well as Seth Hawkins, well-known as well. This dovetails into the 2019 clinical practice guidelines of the WMS. So let's go. Uh, many of you may remember it was uh, November 24th, 2019, when professional climber Emily Harrington fell off the Golden Gate routes on El Capitan while attempting the route in a day. They were using an interesting technique called simulclimbing, and her partner, who happened to be Alex Honnold, was able to catch the very dramatic 40-foot fall. Honnold and several Yosemite search and rescue paramedics actually reached Harrington and descended her a pretty short distance uh, from the cliff to the ground, where she was then immobilized using a vacuum mattress, head, head blocks, and a cervical collar. And that's actually the photo that you see there, which uh, unfortunately is not a video, but you can uh, do a quick Google search and find that video. But my main question is, you know, was all of that actually necessary? And so Dr. Hawkins and I aim to present new principles of spinal cord protection and illuminate the research behind this changing practice. 
So social media, I don't recommend that you waste an entire uh, afternoon looking through social media, but if you just do a quick uh, keyword search for search and rescue or mountain rescue or wilderness medicine, you might happen to see a few photos of backcountry rescues and you may see some backboards in there. And, and unfortunately in this case, I think the backboard is very much alive and well. And hopefully through this presentation, we can talk a little bit about uh, change and the practice of change. And so in regards to spinal cord protection, really we're actively in the transition of a, really an era. And so as we progress through this presentation, I know that Seth and I both encourage all of you to really question what you believe. Many of you are probably contemplating a potential change in practice. Uh, maybe you're recognizing that the benefit of change may actually outweigh the risk of staying the same, or potentially you decided to throw your backwards in a bonfire years ago, and now you're out there searching for, uh, for patch kits for your vacuum mattresses. So wherever you kind of fall into the spectrum, we hope that this presentation will change or potentially refine your practice. So really the, the evolution to the point where we were uh, thinking that spinal mobilization was a good thing um, started with much more basic practices of simply moving patients from one place to another, often in a military experience. So um, long backboards and rigid boards are very helpful, especially when they have handles to move quickly uh, patients out from under fire or from out of dangerous uh, areas in wilderness environments. That original impetus on moving a patient became um, over time uh, a slightly less uh, evidence-based idea that immobilization was a proper medical goal and that the more immobilized the patient was, the better their packaging was and the less likely that they would be um, injured further by activities in the field. So a lot of this may look familiar to many of you. These are the dogmas uh, or belief systems that drove uh, most of our patient packaging to protect spinal cord injuries uh, or to prevent the exacerbation of them in the, in the 20th century. So the concept was that somebody had sustained trauma and that might lead to a potentially unstable spinal injury and a potentially unstable, unstable spinal injury that was bony could injure the spinal cord. If the spinal cord was injured, there could be permanent neurological deficit. And the idea was if somebody had anything along those points, either a potential spinal vertebral injury or a potential spinal cord injury, the additional movement of the neck or back could cause further exacerbation of that injury um, or could cause a new injury to an unstable um, back or neck. Uh, that injury could be prevented by immobilization of the spine and that that was a safe practice and would be effective in preventing these further injuries. And I'm, I'm hoping that all those sound familiar to many of you um, who are not growing up a new era uh, of this uh, methodology, um, because this was mantra for many, many, many years, uh, really from the 1960s on. Um, the final point, which was maybe the most insidious, was that medical legal issues prevented us from changing. In other words, it was too legally risky to avoid implementing all these practices because they were the standard of care, which speaks a little bit to Hoswald's data from 2007, saying that people are unwilling to change their practice until somebody from their group comes in and convinces them that it's safe, not only in terms of patient care, but also in terms of uh, legal exposure. Yeah, so if we uh, somewhat fast forward from 1966 to 2006, uh, I was actually teaching uh, EMT courses at a local community college here in New Mexico. And, you know, pretty interesting, a friend of mine once told me that uh, when things are written in a textbook, they're typically then written in stone. And uh, while I was uh, preparing some of the kind of initial research in 2013 and then preparing some talks afterwards, I looked back at my old publisher produced slide sets 
uh, from 2006 and was pretty um, aghast at the, the highlighted section down there that stated that 25% of all uh, spinal cord injuries occur from improper handling of the spine and patient after injury. And if we actually uh, take a look at our uh, specific data in the 2019 uh, guidelines, um, what we actually see when we uh, truly dive into this is that you know, there's many articles that have been uh, somewhat repeatedly quoted in the literature as offering some type of case evidence that there has been neurological deterioration specifically in the presence of spinal cord injury because there was some type of inadequate out of hospital uh, care specifically around immobilization. When you actually dive into these cases and do some careful review, it actually reveals that uh, virtually all represents really a missed or late diagnosis um, after hospital admission or deterioration that occurred while under some uh, treatment for a, uh, for a known diagnosis. And I thought that was pretty profound looking back at this, but if we take that and then kind of overlay the map of looking specifically at spinal mobilization and now looking at the data, knowing that spinal mobilization itself is very much not a benign procedure, I think it makes it even that, uh, that much more profound. And so once again, our, our panel was not able to identify a single well-documented case in the literature of, of any out-of-hospital neurological deterioration as the direct result or consequence of improper care or handling um, in this out-of-hospital environment. But conversely, we actually uh, observed a lot of case documentation that there has been severe uh, morbidity and in some cases actually even mortality secondary to immobilizing um, a, a person or a patient. This, uh, this slide uh, five years ago would have been, or 10 years ago, it would have been really exciting to put up because it was super cool to think about improvising um, rigid cervical collars with SAM splints or other tools that we might have. And, uh, you know, within 10 years, this was uh, considered to be a very cutting edge sort of wilderness medicine innovation. Now it's probably not quite so helpful because if we don't really want to be using rigid cervical collars, we don't really want to be improvising them. Um, so this is a sea change in wilderness medical education and in improvised medicine. It doesn't necessarily mean that using improvised splints in this way is inappropriate for protecting possible injuries to the neck. It's simply that instead of shooting for immobilization, what we'd be trying to do is build um, a tool that would be more reminding conscious patients or preventing non-physiological motion in non-conscious patients to not move their necks in inappropriate ways. Um, but really, ultimately, we need to just recognize the degrees of major trauma, identify any mechanism of injury that may exist, specifically with the potential to actually cause a spinal cord injury, perform our basic physical examinations, neurological systems, look at those distracting injuries, and then at the end of that assessment criteria, then recommend passive spinal motion restriction or soft padding or vacuum splinting. And a lot of the cases, it's going to be pretty straightforward, especially if patients are not able to ambulate out of these environments, you're probably going to go straight towards vacuum splinting if you have those tools and equipments available. Hopefully these snippets were helpful to you, and hopefully the previous discussions were also very instructive, and you can take home a lot of points here. If you have any questions, please don't contact, please don't contact us. That was a blooper. No, please do not hesitate to contact us. Take care. The Wilderness and Environmental Medicine live podcast from the Wilderness Medical Society, our official journal, is published by Elsevier. Do the CME questions at wms.org under members.